In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined by Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell to talk about the election that's coming up right around the corner on Tuesday, the Georgia's primary, and uh, all the all the different factors that have gone into these races, uh, including the pandemic, including the George Floyd protests, including um, a fight for attention with all these all, all this major news. Tia, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Greg. Thank you for asking. Yeah, it's been busy. Um, and Tia, basically how the way we've we've kind of uh, partitioned it is Tia's been all over the, the House races. We have three open U.S. House races, while also covering, of course, the Senate and Washington delegation. And I've been focused more on the Senate races as well as the governor and, and, and a lot of pandemic slash protest related news right here. So there's no shortage of news. Um, but the biggest news we've got on our radar right now is Tuesday's primary. And let's get right into what a weird campaign this has been. I mean, the pandemic has forced candidates to rethink just about everything. And only now some are getting back on the trail. Yeah, that has been uh, that's going to be, I think, one of the history lessons when we look back on the 2020 campaign season is how much the pandemic impacted the way candidates reach voters. And of course, we know that gives a natural um, advantage to incumbents and people who like John Ossoff, Ossoff, who has already run for office before. So he has the name recognition. It's really made it much harder for candidates who've never been on the ballot before to really break through because there aren't those natural events and gatherings where they can, you know, meet voters and maybe say something that resonates or or have a moment. That's much harder to do when you're, you know, strictly on social media or calling and texting. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's hard it's hard to gauge voter enthusiasm and interest. Um you know, when when you're, you can't have any in-person events, there's been no raucous campaign rallies, no backslapping barbecues, no, you know, hoity-toity fundraisers at fancy hotels, at least not for, for months. And and uh, you, you, you and Sarah Callas, another one of her colleagues, reported um, that the House candidates, mostly Republicans, there's a couple of Democrats, but mostly Republicans, are are just now going back to in-person campaigning, while most Democrats still are doing virtual campaigning. Right. So we did find that in the past couple of weeks, 
as Georgia began to relax its coronavirus sheltering in place restrictions, that some candidates, like you said, most of them are Republicans, have started, you know, but still small. They use a lot of open outdoor spaces like backyards and parks. Um, and they're, you know, having these small gatherings, meet and greets. You know, um, Dr. Rich McCormick is doing a family fun day at a park and coming where he's going to have shaved ice. Those kinds of things where people and supporters and, and constituents can can gather and hear from him, but still not the big events that that we might have seen closer to primary day. We're also um, seeing that there are a couple of of Democrats. Um, Carolyn Bordeaux has started what she calls these kind of like drive-by campaigning where she'll show up somewhere and do a, a, a little speech or something for supporters. John Eves, who's running in the, um, you know, that was Teresa Tomlinson. And then John Eves, who's running in the seventh, is um, he's actually been protesting out with um, the Black Lives Matter protests in Atlanta. But he's also been knocking on doors, which is something we're not hearing from a lot of candidates of either party that they're doing that traditional canvassing door to door. Um, and, and he says, of course, not everyone answers when he knocks. But there have been some people who have answered and, and have allowed him to make his pitch. And that door-to-door canvassing is such an important part. It's such a staple of the campaign playbook um, throughout the country, of course, and especially when it comes to legislative races and more localized races where you can really, you know, contact, personally contact so many of the voters um, you know, a giant proportion of, of, of your district's voters. And, of course, that's been rendered almost for months at least until recently, like pretty much impossible. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how challengers fare, uh, uh, fare up and down the ballot uh, to, to incumbents because, you know, as you mentioned, incumbents have um, giant built-in advantages. They already have advantages with fundraising and, and name recognition, but they have even, even, um, even bigger advantages, it seems, this time around. Uh, because voters, you know, haven't gotten as much of a chance to know the ca- challengers. The challengers have to work that much harder to get their name and message out. Yeah, and one race where that's really been interesting is in the 13th congressional district. That's the Atlanta Southern suburban district, kind of, and then it wraps around to Cobb County. And so you have U.S. Rep. David Scott. He's going for a 10th term. So he's been around, you know, long enough to have people who love him and people who maybe aren't as enthusiastic. He had some really um, some really interesting challengers. You've got a former mayor of East Point in Janquel Peters. You have Michael Owens, who's the former chairman of the Cobb County Democratic Party. You have former state rep Keisha Sean Waite. So these are people who do have name recognition, although not necessarily district wide. But um, first of all, Representative Scott, as an incumbent, has a huge fundraising advantage. He came into the race with a fundraising advantage. None of the candidates seem to have been able to raise any money. Um, But also because of the coronavirus pandemic, one of the big things that 
um, the challengers were saying about Representative Scott is that he's not visible enough. He, his constituent services aren't robust enough. And but during the coronavirus pandemic, he's holding virtual town halls. He's uh, making sure his constituents get emails about resources. So he was able to use this time to his advantage to bolster up kind of public awareness of what he does. And as a result, even though there are definitely people, voters who have not been fans of Representative Scott, you don't see any of his opponents um, with with huge momentum. That being said, you know, we never know what's going to happen on primary day and a lot will depend on turnout. But there hasn't been that groundswell that I think some of those challengers had hoped for. Yeah. And a reminder about Georgia election law. Um, if, if no candidate, if there's multiple candidates in the race, more than two, and no candidate gets 50 percent of the vote or more, a majority of the vote, um, then it go, we go to an August runoff. And the goal for every incumbent is to avoid that August runoff. And um, and there's going to be some interesting races. Um, uh, you know, in other U.S. House races, they're almost certain to go to runoffs. And that includes uh, all three open U.S. House seats that T has been writing about the 7th, the 9th, and the 14th. And and I guess let's start with the 7th because that one was the – that's incumbent Rob Woodall's uh, not standing for in another term. And that was the home of the closest U.S. House election in the nation in 2018. Woodall won by just a few hundred votes over Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, she's running again, but so are about half a dozen other Democrats. And about half a dozen Republicans are vying for the nomination as well. So a very, very heated race. Yeah, and that's that swing – suburban Atlanta district up in Gwinnett and Forsyth County. And we expect both runoffs in the Republican primary and the Democratic primary, because as you said, there are several candidates in each of these races. On the Republican side, it's looking like Dr. Rich McCormick, he's an emergency room physician and also um, active in the military. I think he's in the reserves. And um He's got a lot of momentum, but also State Senator Renee Unterman has a lot of momentum. Of course, she's uh, more, you know, very conservative, known for backing the heartbeat bill. So we think those two are likely to make the runoff in the Republican primary. And then on the Democratic side, it's looking like Bordeaux still has great endorsements. She's back saying, you know, I came close against the incumbent two years ago. I'm trying again. However, she has been criticized because that that district is very diverse. You know, you've got a lot of Hispanics and people of Asian uh, descent in the seventh congressional district and all the other Democrats in the race, um, you know, are people of color. And so. Um, there have been people, you know, who are not fans of Bordeaux saying it's time to, number one, try another nominee who has does not have a loss under their belt. But they've also said the nominee should be a person of color to reflect the diversity of the district. And as you know, it looks like Bordeaux will likely make the runoff. And then it's looking like state senator Zara Karinshak, who it's it's ironic that she was the one who was the most vocal against Unterman on the heartbeat bill. Now both of them are running for uh, the 7th Congressional District. It's looking that Karen Shack might be that alternative to Bordeaux that makes the runoff. And Karen Shack is also a, a, a U.S. Air Force veteran. Um, 
uh, who, who was recently elected um, to the Georgia State Senate, as you, as you, as you noted, um, in a very swing district in the Georgia Senate. And another, um, another contender to keep an eye on is Nabil Islam, who is a young activist, who you, a veteran of Jason Carter's campaign, um, who picked up the endorsement of um, AOC's PAC. Um, so she's running as, a, as the sort of liberal progressive, the most progressive in that race. And uh, she's hoping to get to energize young voters and get, get people who usually skip these races um, to, to turn out or to at least mail in their ballots. And, and that's the other giant wild card. And we'll get to the 9th and 14th in a second. But, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that even though we're in a pandemic and most people, more, more people are still staying at home and avoiding unnecessary travel and all that, we're going to have record turnout for this race. More than a million ballots have already been uh, cast, um, mostly mail-in, 800,000-plus mail-in, and that number is going to grow. Um, and, you know, we're, we're still days away from Election Day. So despite all these, restri- you know, these, these economic restrictions and mobility concerns, we're going to have a surge of turnout. And no one, that, that's why it's so hard to predict some of these races because, um, you know, because so many more people are mailing in their ballots – all uh, 6.9 million Georgia voters got absentee ballot request forms from the Secretary of State's office, and and you know a, a decent chunk of them, a million a million plus, um, have have already uh, are expected to end up turning in their ballots by Tuesday. So um, that's going to tr- that has already transformed the electorate in a major way. Right, and and number one, I think we should pause to talk about just that fact that. When Georgia made it easier to vote by mail or at least, you know, did some of the legwork for people who might be inclined to vote by mail, look what happened. More people are voting by mail. We have more people voting in general. And, you know, that has unfortunately become somewhat of a partisan thing. But I think it bears us noting that. In general, it's widely accepted that we want more people to vote. That's how American democracy should work. And this initiative to encourage voting by mail seems to be accomplishing that this year. Now, of course, we're looking at not only with the voting by mail, but the social distancing limitations. It might lead to somewhat delayed election results, and that's somewhat of a trade-off that we're expecting. But it definitely seems to have increased, as you said, voter turnout. Um, and and that's going to be interesting because we have, it's going to cause candidates, especially if this trend continues, and I think that's something the General Assembly will want to discuss Um if voting by mail continues to be encouraged in this way, continues to be the trend, then that's going to continue to impact how candidates campaign, because now you've got to continue to take into account early voting and advanced ways of voting. And you can't just wait until to make that push the weekend before the election. If you're a campaign, you can figure out who has gotten an absentee ballot but hasn't returned it yet. And you can target those voters specifically, too. You don't know, obviously, if they're going to vote for you or, or, or whoever, but you can at least better target. Uh, and so some candidates have said that's been an advantage. Another thing that some candidates have told me is that fundraising has been surprisingly um, 
made easier by virtual uh, uh, campaigning because you might not be able to raise as much money, but it's a lot easier to pull off fundraisers because you don't have to go rent a hotel space or get a lot of food or any of that. Of course, there's also challenges for newcomer candidates um, to even be able to get that, you know, get that base of support to to, want to donate to them. But, you know, in in lieu of the large scale fundraisers you used to see at fancy hotels or or ballrooms, um, now they're just uh, you know, remote remote conferences from people's living rooms. And, you know, I think to, to some degree, even for the donors, it's somewhat of a relief because they don't have to go to 15 events every week anymore. They can, they, if they like a candidate, they can just stream in from, from home. Um, well, let's talk about the 9th and 14th districts because those are two other districts you've been very closely watching. And those are two of the most Republican districts on the eastern seaboard. Uh, it would be a stunning shock if a Democrat uh, in November gets anywhere close. But you've got a slew of Republicans running in both those races. And really, it seems like a race to the to the party's right flank. Right. And that's, you know, and the difference between these races and the seventh is that we have crowded primaries. But in the seventh, whoever wins the GOP primary is going to have to somewhat moderate their message in order to win in the general election. Um, that's not the case in the ninth and 14th. They can try, you know, as you've said, these candidates have all said how much they support President Trump. They've all kind of tried to boost how conservative they are and how big of a defender of the Second Amendment they are. And um, it does seem like voters in these districts are looking for people who they believe will go to Washington and defend President Trump stand up to Nancy Pelosi in a in a Congress that for right now is controlled by Democrats. And and we don't see much indication that that will change this year. So remember, they're not necessarily sending Republicans up right now to legislate as much as they are sending Republicans to Washington who can help kind of defend the party line and protect the president. Yep, and these are districts that are that are heavily pro-Trump. Trump dominated both these districts. Um, one of them is held right now by Doug Collins, uh, one of Trump's fiercest defenders in the U.S. House, who's stepping down to run for the U.S. Senate against Kelly Leffler. That race we won't really be talking about today because that race isn't until November. It's a special election. Um, and the other one is Tom Graves, another another. Um, uh, a uh, very conservative Georgia lawmaker who's also stepping down. He wants to spend more time with his family. And um, that race is, is equally fascinating because, yeah, you've got several candidates who, who, who don't live in the district. Um, and you've got several who do, who are, you know, young state legislators or they are, they're, they're, they're political newcomers um, who want to kind of make their mark. And, um, and one of them is a neurosurgeon named John Cowan from up in Rome. And um, he's looking like, at least he's nearing. It looks like he could be one of those spots in the runoff. Um, most Republican operatives think that Marjorie Taylor Greene, a um, who initially was running for the sixth district in Georgia, um, but but moved over to the fourteenth after that that race came open. Most Republican operatives think she's in the catbird seat here because she spent so much money and and energy already um, on this race. So it's going to be that one's going to be a fun one to watch too. And I think one of the things we haven't talked about a whole whole lot is how some of the more fringe aspects of conservative politics have become factors in both the 9th and the 14th. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, who um, 
even though she's not necessarily said she's with the QAnon faction, if you look at her social media, she posts a lot of things that are along the lines of what the QAnon people post. And for those listeners who aren't really familiar with that, those are the folks who believe that there's this deep state conspiracy to undermine President Trump. And um, QAnon has a lot of conspiracy theories that go along with it. And they have a certain language they speak, certain acronyms, certain phrases. And you'll see a lot of that in Marjorie Taylor Greene's social media. And so in addition, there's the this um, new group, uh, the USA Patriots, that was created by a former white supremacist, Chester Doles. And he has been having events that certain candidates in both the 9th and the 14th, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gertler, who's running in the 9th, the state representative. And so, again, you've got that fringe aspect where Chester Dole says, listen, I'm not about white supremacy anymore. I'm more focused on politics and electing good, conservative, patriotic people. And not everyone buys that. And so there have been people who particularly focused on Gertler have questioned why he continues to somewhat, you know, to show up and be photographed with and allow Chester Doles and that group to support him. So that's become a factor in that race. Doug Collins, actually, as we've said, as the incumbent has, you know, chose in the past to not attend events sponsored by Chester Doles and has spoken out about that kind of aspect. And so um, that may not be a, a huge, huge factor now, but if Gertler and Marjorie Taylor Greene make it to the runoff, expect more conversations about that. Oh yeah, for sure. And we haven't gotten to the marquee race, the, the, the Georgia Senate Democratic primary, um, and that pits seven candidates, but really three high-profile, uh, well-financed candidates um, for the right to challenge David Perdue in November. David Perdue does not have a primary opponent. Um, so he it shows you how popular he is among the Republican base. Um, not even a fringe candidate uh, is challenging him. So he, he's already got the nomination. But um, you, you've got seven Democrats running, but the three biggest names are John Ossoff, Sarah Riggs Amico, and Teresa Tomlinson. And um, for a while, it seemed faded that we were headed to a runoff, but and we still probably are. But recent polls have showed that Ossoff is within striking distance. He's within range um, of winning this race outright. Um, there was a WSB poll that came out showing him in the kind of low to mid 40s and a um, another poll by a Republican outfit that showed him closer to high 40s. Um, uh, most of the uh, the operatives I talked to have him in that range too in their internal polls. So they have him kind of in 42 to 45, 46. And if you're that close, it certainly is tempting to go for the all-out win because no one knows better than John Ossoff uh, the dangers of, of, a, uh, of, of a second round of a runoff. Back in 2017, during the special election uh, for the open U.S. House seat, they got so much national attention, the 6th District race, uh, he got about 48% of the vote in the first round with a with a giant field of, of more than a dozen candidates. Um, but in that second round against Karen Handel, who only got, you know, who, who got far fewer votes in that first round because there's so many Republicans running, in that second round, she won by four points. So recently, when John Ossoff spent $450,000 of his own money into his, put, put that money into his own campaign, it raised a lot of speculation that he could be going for the, uh, for the knockout blow, even though his aides continue to deny that. 
um, that's probably what he's doing right now because who knows better than him the dangers of round two. Right. And I do think it's interesting that Republicans are trying to set the bar high for Ossoff on Tuesday and say, you know, if he doesn't uh, grasp 50% and if he goes to a runoff, that'll be a huge disappointment. And that's not the case, as you know, like you've mentioned, there are so many candidates that it's going to be hard for Ossoff to make it to 50%. I know he wants it and I'm sure and I, we know he won't, um, you know, be, be sad if he, if he surpasses it, but if he doesn't, it's not the letdown that I think some Republicans are trying to make it out to be. But what that tells me is that they are concerned about his strength because they're already trying to poke holes in it. And that means they're concerned about, yeah, about what what that would look like in November. Yeah. I mean, raising expectations to make it look like even if he gets 46, 47 percent of the vote, that that's a failure. And look, in Georgia, we know that the, these races reset. Right. I mean, a lot very often the second place finisher in the in the first round goes on to win in a runoff and, you know, look no further than the Republican race for governor two years ago when Casey Cagle got about 40 percent of the vote and Brian Kemp landed in a runoff because he was the second he was the runner up. And of course, he just trounced um, Casey Cagle in the runoff. And that was partly due to all these other factors like a, a, a secret tape recording. And, and of course, President Trump's endorsement didn't hurt. But Things happen, and these races reset. And so, if you're if you're if you've got such a commanding lead already, then it's very tempting just to put everything you can into winning the race outright. And that's four hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars of of John Ossoff's own money, and he's already leading the field by far in fundraising. So he already had a huge fundraising advantage. Um, he threw in another four hundred fifty thousand dollars of his own cash. Uh, we'll see if he he puts in even more. I mean, as these as these these filings come, we might not know until after the race. But he has flooded the Atlanta airways with ads, not nearly as many ads as we saw three years ago, but a lot of ads. And his opponents are, are, are feeling the pressure. Um, Teresa Tomlinson is number two in a lot of the polls around kind of mid-teens in some of them, maybe 20 percent in, in a few, but mostly in the mid-teens. And um, she's the former two-term mayor of Columbus who's saying that she's the only one with elected experience and she's the only one who can go toe-to-toe with David Perdue in November. Um, But she's having a little harder time breaking through in terms of ads because she doesn't have as much money in the field right now. Right. And then you also, like you mentioned, Sarah Riggs Amico, who does have the name recognition after running as, you know, the lieutenant governor nominee next to Stacey Abrams. But out of the three, she seems to be the one that is most likely not to make the runoff. She's just really struggling to break through. She's really struggling to raise money. She's used a lot of her own money um, for the campaign. And I think it's I think one of the things one of the things that hurts her is that it seems to be that running with Stacey Abrams is her claim to fame. You know, when you ask for, when you ask voters, what else do you know about her? They don't know much else other than that. And that can only take you so far because Stacey Abrams is not making an endorsement in this primary, nor would we expect her to. Um, But Amico, I think, is really challenged by that. Yeah. And that's where this whole name recognition thing is going to be really fascinating to me because... 
Um, if you're if you're picking up a ballot and you haven't been paying attention to your Senate race, but you're picking up the ballot because you want to vote in one of those House races you talked about earlier, or you want to vote for you know one of the many many local races and state legislative races that are on the ballot as well. Um, you know that it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how many people who haven't paid attention, but who might have recognized Amico's name or recognized Ossoff's name, or who've heard something about Tomlinson and maybe haven't done a bunch of research. But you know, Amico's name comes first on the ballot, so uh, above those uh, uh, her rivals. So maybe that plays into it. You know, it, it's 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 one of these things we'll be analyzing next week and see what happened. But um, right now, I think that any one of those three have a decent shot of, well, certainly Ossoff has a place in a runoff if it's going to happen, but I, I think either Tomlinson or Amico um, have a have at least a viable chance at making it. Um, and of course, Republicans are just waiting, right? Um, they are hoping for an extended runoff period because that distracts Democrats' attention for another nine weeks up into an August runoff. Um, and we'll also definitely have runoffs, as you mentioned, in House races. And of course, there's a slew of state legislative races that really will be very important um, to determining the control of the Georgia House in November. Democrats need to flip about 15 seats to retake control of the Georgia House for the first time in decades. And a lot of these races on the ballot will will help determine, you know, which candidates can challenge those Republican incumbents. And um, many, many Republicans and Democrats are facing pretty pretty formidable challenges for the first time in a while. Right. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, in a state that historically has been as red as Georgia, there is a real chance for Democrats. It's an uphill battle. It's not a guarantee. Republicans are still in the driver's seat. But the fact that this conversation is happening at all is is a big deal. And even if Democrats don't necessarily take control of the House, but they pick up enough seats to make Republicans concerned, remember that this is also going into a period where there will be redistricting. And so it's just it's just a it's just so interesting to see in Georgia Democrats really poised to create, I guess what you would say, more seats at the Mm -hmm. table for themselves. And, you know, I, I, we, we've talked about this in our last podcast, too, um, but the George Floyd protests and how these have impacted the races as well. And we're seeing tremendously long lines in some parts of Atlanta on Friday for early, for the last day of early voting as people kind of like, hey, there's election Tuesday. Uh, of course, those people still have the option to, to turn in their, um, their absentee ballot. Uh, as long as it's postmarked by Tuesday at 7 p.m., you can put them in secure bo- lock, uh, secure boxes all over um, the state. But that's refocused some attention, not just on these these top races, but also all the races for judicial posts and, and district attorneys and sheriffs that are also on the ballot. Because um, as as this as these tragedies have have reminded us, local law enforcement are, are the final say on so many of these important decisions about whether to prosecute, what kind of police tactics and what kind of strategies, uh, law enforcement strategies communities take. And I think there's, I think you're starting to see at least a new recognition of how important all these local DA races and, and judicial races and sheriff races really are. Right. And in, especially in this climate where policing and law enforcement tactics has become such a huge focus, 
again, these races, even, you know, look at DeKalb and you have a, a highly contested race for DeKalb Sheriff in Cobb County, where, as we know, the trend in Cobb is 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 leaning more towards dem- more Democratic candidates are starting to win in Cobb County. So you've got a big race there for Sheriff, as well as Fulton County DA, which that race is not necessarily partisan because, you know, Democrats usually win in Fulton County, but you've got an incumbent who's very embattled right now facing facing real challenges uh, for his seat. Yep. And one more race we cannot go, they cannot go unmentioned is the perhaps the biggest one of all, which was the presidential race. It was supposed to be the biggest one of all. Um, way back uh, when this was first, when the pri- presidential primary was first scheduled for March 24th, it looked like Georgia could at least play a significant role, if not the, you know, the arbiter of the race, just, you know, help help set the tone um, for the for the contest. But of course, that election was delayed once to Ju- to May and then again to, to Tuesday. And of course, now that race is an afterthought, but still... Um, some Bernie Sanders supporters will be trying to to rack up some votes for him to at least help him get some delegates and influence the uh, the party's uh, platform during the convention. And there is a slim chance, maybe not by the time you hear this, but as of right now of the recording on Friday, there's a slim chance that Georgia could actually clinch the Democratic nomination for Joe Biden. As of this recording, he needs 19 uh, more delegates to officially clinch the nomination. And there's still a few dozen delegates to be allocated from last Tuesday's primaries and seven more available Saturday. But, you know, if those aren't allocated in time to him, then Georgia could be the uh, the big moment for, for Joe Biden. Who would have thought? Right. And I mean, it's funny because before all the delays in rescheduled primaries, we thought that's a role Georgia could take back on the original primary date. And now, even though Georgia's primary has been delayed twice, it's still a conversation we're having. And it, again, uh, it's influenced now by the coronavirus pandemic and and slow vote counting in, in certain states of which Georgia may also be on that list. But I think it's interesting to see that the, the conversation is back in Georgia. Well, we will have you covered um, go, going up to primary day and, of course, all over the news on primary. Um, check out Tia's Twitter feed for a, a long list of all the guides that we've been putting out for all these races. Um, we'll have several more stories coming, previewing the races. We have biographies of the main Senate candidates. Um, we have just a lot of coverage of the overall House races in the 9th and 14th districts, as well as the 7th district. And we'll have plenty more to come. Um, Tia, rest up because uh, the next couple of days are going to be very busy for us. Yes, we're looking for an interesting but very, very busy primary day. So you guys stay tuned to the AJC. That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.